Hey there. Thanks so much for joining us for the Life Support Podcast. It's where we talk to providers, community members, experts, and others about their experiences with health and the systems that create it. Today I'm talking with Camille Evans. She's the Director of Behavioral Health at Valor Health, a critical access hospital in Emmett, Idaho. About three years ago, Camille began working with CHU in a partnership to increase access to affirming and appropriate care for LGBTQ plus individuals living in rural communities. She talks a little bit about her lived experience as a family member of someone who identifies as LGBTQ plus and her professional experience and someone who ultimately has come to really be a strong leader within the community uh, for developing more affirming care practices and standing up the healthcare system as a leader for affirming and appropriate care. Thank you to Camille for her openness and her effort in this area. And thank you to you for taking the time to listen. Enjoy. Camille, can you tell me just a little bit more about yourself and the community where you live? Sure. So I am an LCSW and um, I'm married. I have five kids. I live here in Emmett. Um, I've been here for about 21 years, but in Idaho, pretty much my entire life. So Emmett is a um, town that's about 30 miles outside of Boise and is in Gem County where we have just under 18,000 people. It, like all other areas of Idaho, is growing really quickly. It's a pretty conservative area. Um, Idaho in general kind of is pretty conservative, but these rural areas tend to be even more so. So that's that's kind of a little bit about Emmett. Awesome. And and what do you do um, in Emmett? What's your job besides um, being a community member and a mom and a wife? Um, what what What's your day job? Plus some. <laughs> so I, I work at Valor Health, which is a small health system, includes a critical access hospital, an emergency department, a surgery center, um, primary care, and specialty care clinics. And so it's owned by the county, doesn't receive any funding from the county, but has been the hospital for, I don't know, like I think 60 years or more, um, has changed names multiple times throughout that period of time, but um, is the, the primary provider here in the Emma community. And what I do here is um, I started with Valor about five years ago. Um, I started doing case management, discharge planning, utilization review, and I was the first full-time social worker that the organization had. So in a small organization, we wear lots of different hats, and so that definitely was the case. And I still wear a few hats, but I wear a few less hats than I did before. Um, Now, well, about three years ago, I started the process of developing an integrated behavioral health program in the primary care clinic. And so that's what I prim- I do for the most part now. I still support the social work program, which now consists of myself and one other social worker that works in the hospital. And so I provide some supervision for her, but spend most of my day doing behavioral health um, here in the primary care clinic. Awesome. So that means that you're on meetings all the time, leading new initiatives, and then also getting your door knocked on to go see patients, right? Yeah, it's it's juggling a lot of different things. I have a tendency to get myself involved in many different projects, and um, which 
is, is good sometimes and sometimes feels very pulled in lots of directions, but I like the opportunity to develop new things, be um, in a small organization, have a lot more freedom for innovation and just kind of like, let's try something new and see what happens. And um, that, that has been a really good and exciting thing for me. That's awesome. Well, it sounds like uh, what, what we do here at CHU. So uh, maybe that's why you're working with us like 15 hours a week <laughs> just on shared projects. So we love it. Um, but speaking of shared projects, um, just I know a couple of years ago, we started working on the Pride in Idaho uh, Care Neighborhoods Project together. Can you talk a little bit about um, on your side how that came to be and really what your inspiration or purpose is behind that project? Sure. So my interest in working with the LGBTQ plus population um, really kind of started about 10 years ago um, with my oldest daughter who identifies as queer and struggled in this community to find support, find resources, um, just feel like she had a place here. And our home became a place where kids who were exploring identity and um, identified within that population felt safe. And so I got to know a lot of her friends and um, kind of kids along the way. And then when I came into this role, just saw that there, was, there wasn't any resources. Um, the way we actually kind of got everything up and going was just a lunch conversation with Jen Y and um, her saying, hey, there's some grants that we'd like to go after to increase the awareness, the inclusivity, and um, support for the LGBTQ plus population, um, would you be interested knowing kind of some of my history and kind of went from there and so um, have had the opportunity to, to build some of those programs. Great. And so how did that really start out for you in terms of your vision for what you wanted to do at Valor with some of the grant funding? So I, I knew that we needed to start with some of the basics um, and that included providing education, just some awareness, some education on my part. Like even though I had had some exposure and you know knew a little bit, I knew I had a whole lot more to learn and continue to have a lot to learn. And then just some of the basic things like the our forms and um, just knowing that when someone comes into the clinic or the hospital, that we have some mechanisms to help staff be able to provide more affirmative care, kind of regardless of, of where they're at in you know, their desire to do so, but that, that we just kind of have that stuff built in, and then we start to change the culture. Yeah, um, and I know that, you know, when we've kind of walked side by side on a lot of this work, that uh, we were pretty surprised sometimes when we did a deeper dive into people's perceptions as consumers of um, healthcare in rural areas, and then also the um, views and skills of um, providers in rural areas. What to you stands out as the most um, kind of surprising or interesting things that you learned early in the process um, that we really decided that we needed to focus on? Um, like you mentioned, it, in the beginning, I got a lot of, I don't really know why this is something that we need to put a lot of effort into. It really doesn't apply to very many of our patients, which I knew to not be true because I knew a number of people in the community that it did apply to. 
But as we've created a more um, inclusive, safe environment, then people are feeling like they can't, they do feel safe to, to tell us more about who they are and share those things. And it does apply to a, a great number of our patients. So, um, so that was kind of surprising that, that people really thought that it didn't, didn't apply. And then um, the mentality that, that it doesn't, it shouldn't matter, that I just treat all of my patients the same. And so it really shouldn't matter what their gender identity or sexual orientation is. That doesn't change the way I provide care. And in some cases, maybe that's true. But the reality and, and what you know I've learned as I continue to do this work is that the not recognizing that that's a huge part of who they are does make a huge difference in the ability to um, to just kind of take care of the whole person and, and recognize who they are and what their needs might be, not to mention some specific needs that might be there for a patient who's transgender. Um, and so I think that that mentality is shifting and people are now seeing more of the why as to why we need to do this work. Um, but that was kind of something that I was surprised by. And then just the level of microaggressions that happen that you just are not even aware of. And the more that you that I've learned and you kind of see things, the more that I have been able to recognize those. And then on the kind of more positive side, the number of staff members that once I started to, to talk about this and, and put some things out there that have came to me and said, I want to be part of, of helping do this work. I This is really important to me also. And so, um, you know, it wasn't just people who kind of were like, eh, I don't know that we need, you know, that this should be a focus. But there's a lot of people who said, yes, thank you. Thank you for bringing this up and for um, trying to increase the, the care options for people. That's exciting. And um, I, I think really speaks to the fact that this is something that is very necessary, um, not only in Emmett, but in a lot of communities. Um, when you think about this work being done with valor and with health systems, and particularly within the context of, you know, we know that LGBTQ plus individuals living in rural communities do face larger barriers to care, but also um, while all rural communities are different, they also face on average more um, discrimination, less support than other areas. What do you think the role of a healthcare um, organization, especially in a small community, should be in um, supporting or leading some of this work? Um, I think that we have a responsibility within healthcare itself to to make sure that we can um, competently care for every member of our community. So when they come to the facility, they we have a um, we have an obligation to do that. But I think in a larger sense within the community, because we are what we are the primary healthcare provider, we are also one of the largest employers in the community. Which in, for for lots of health organizations in a small community, that may be the case, and we connect with so many different areas of the community that as we do this work and this becomes something that people start to recognize that it starts to kind of make a transition in the rest of the community. Um, I had a conversation with our EMS provider just recently 
and um, had a shared patient that identifies as transgender and was able to provide a little bit of education on appropriate terms to use and ways to respect and honor them. And, and then was able to say, hey, I'd love to come do a training for your staff if that's something that, that you would like done. And so we have an opportunity to, to share what we are doing with the rest of the community. That's fantastic. And um, I know that just based on some of my rather limited experience, but time in the Emmett community, that Valor is really an anchor and um, a leader. So it's exciting to see y'all take on this work. When you've gone through this process, which is almost two and a half years now, um, what are the things that you can look back on and say were really effective and that you would love to share out with other organizations um, or communities looking to do similar work? Um, so like specific things that we've done? Yeah, yeah. What are what are some specific changes um, or strategies that um, we've implemented that uh, you would say um, was really successful? Okay, yeah. So I started with looking at the lists that are out there, uh, different resources um, that go through all the things that an organization can do to create an inclusive environment. And some of them made sense for us. Some of them just really didn't. And so I had to pick and choose what was going to make the biggest impact and be something that, that we really could achieve. There's things in the small community that are on those lists that are just going to be very difficult, like having representation on your board. If the, the you know the commu that community is invisible in your community and doesn't feel safe within your community, you're probably not going to get someone on the board. Um, at least, you know, not for a while until some additional work's been done. So starting where we could. And what we started with was paying attention to our forms and moving to change those forms to be more inclusive, working on our EMR and having a way to be able to identify in the patient's electronic chart um, their name, their pronouns, um, any of um, the gender identity, any of that stuff that is going to help us in being able to honor who that person is when they walk through our door. Um, education to staff, which I've learned is something you have to make sure is, is ongoing with turnover and just all the other things that staff have coming at them. It's something that you have to kind of do at least on an annual basis to be able to um, help make sure that everyone is on the same page, speaking the same language, using appropriate language. So um, just conversations, and, um, we, and then we've also worked on identifying areas um, for care that haven't been available in the community and trying to fill those gaps, such as hormone therapy, um, gender-affirming hormone therapy, and, and then being able to upskill providers to be able to provide, to, to offer those services. Yeah. And you all have done so much work in the last couple of years. I think it's really neat to kind of look back and reflect on um, where you started and what you've really built out. And then I guess the, the flip side to that coin is what can you look back on and say, man, I, if, if I was going to do this somewhere else, or if I was going to teach somebody else how to do this, I, I would have done X differently or Y differently. Um, any thoughts on that? 
I think making sure that education in small, little, ingestible bits is um, is something that's really accessible. So I hate recording trainings, but I have resigned to the idea that that's just how you have to do it because when you have staff and some staff that work 24, you know, work graveyard shift and you've got staff that's working 24-7, to get them all into a training is just not realistic, not to mention, you know, going through a pandemic and physically not being able to bring people together. And so being creative about how you get education out there early and often would be something that I would do more of from the very beginning, and um, and then making sure that administration not only is saying, yes, we support this work, but they really understand the why we need to support this work. Why does it make a difference? What are the, what is, um, what's the impact that they might care about that um, that you can help to communicate? And, um, and that's something, I mean, see, these are some of the things that I'm working on now, recognizing that if I, if I had done some of that from the beginning, maybe it could have made a difference in a different way. But um, those would probably be the biggest things. Yeah. And I remember us being about nine months into the project, and then we went and surveyed the providers, and we we're like, oh, that's surprising. We should have figured that out earlier. Um, so knowing that this was a group effort, um, I think that there's definitely lessons learned, but on the whole, um, more successes that we can share with others through um, like the Pride in Idaho Care Neighborhood Roadmap or other resources like that. One of the things that we have been um, really scaling and presenting a lot lately is the um, consultation model with um, Full Circle. Can you talk a little bit more about that and really why that's something that's effective in a community like Emmett and what the benefit is for, for your provider team? Yeah, so this is um, really focused on pr- expanding services and being able to provide um, the gender-affirming hormone therapy in our community. Um, currently, or prior to us doing this work, there's nobody who's providing those services. And so people would have to go, you know, drive, which could take, you know, about an hour to every time that they need to see a provider. And they were having to switch their primary care provider to a provider over in the Boise area. And so being able to offer those services here was something that we felt like was important. So at that, at the beginning of, of these conversations, none of the physicians that we have um, had any experience with really providing any of that hormone treatment. And so we um, luckily have a physician who was very interested in it and wanted to learn more and very willing to work with me on this. And so she um, has been instrumental in, in being able to, to make this work. And what we've done is partner with Full Circle Health in being able to provide a consultative visit. So when we have a patient who comes in and says that they would like to start hormone therapy, then we do an initial visit with them, ask some of the initial questions, educate them on what um, what this means and what the side effects are, and just to help make sure that they understand. And, and we have informed consent that this is what they would like to do. And then we kind of continue that with the consultative visit where a provider from Full Circle Health will 
virtually meet with us and the patient and um, discuss any questions that they have and really then focus on what is the appropriate plan of care for this patient, what medications would be used, at what doses, answer any questions. And this provides not only additional information for the patient, but education for our physician. And, um, and eventually, we probably won't need those consultative visits. She'll feel comfortable in being able to provide that, knowing that we still have full circle health providers to call if there's questions that come up. But it's been a great way to bridge that gap that we have and, um, and something that I can see other communities that maybe even have a longer distance that patients may need to go to access services um, that, they, they, that they could replicate and their community members could benefit from. Yeah, I think that you guys have created a, um, a model practice that um, hopefully, again, could really support other organizations as well. Um, I guess one uh, one closing thought for me uh, is just thinking about that when we've done provider trainings, it's been great to go and do um, some of the really content didactic trainings, but what folks seemed to really enjoy was hearing from patients um, that had had both positive and negative experiences uh, living as um, an LGBTQ plus uh, community member in a rural area. Um, So kind of in that spirit, um, are there um, any stories of patients or providers that you feel comfortable sharing um, that really stick out to you as um, kind of highlighting why why this is important? Yeah, I have um, one patient in particular that definitely just pops in my head, and um, and I have asked him if I can share this story, and he, he said, absolutely. So this patient, when, they first, when he first came to us, was um, very anxious, had, um, you know, initially we were kind of focused on some mental health needs, and, um, and then moved towards want him being interested in hormone therapy. And so we did the consultative visit, we... Um, got them started on testosterone, and it had probably been about six months, I want to say, that they had been on the testosterone, and we've had had to do a little bit of, you know, back and forth, making sure that the dosage was right and stuff, but they said to me one day that they had always struggled to be able to look in the mirror and, and I mean, even just to look in the mirror for any extended period of time, because what they saw reflected back to them just did not feel like them. It didn't, they couldn't connect with what they were seeing in the mirror. And it it was really hard for them to just um, be able to stand there and look at themselves. And he said, I, the other day stood in the mirror and just stood there for about five minutes, just looking at myself, thinking that this is, I am, I feel more like me. I, um, I, I started to really like what I was seeing in the mirror. And the interesting thing to me is that if you were to look at this patient six months ago and look at them now, there's really no physical changes that you could identify, but just the way that they felt inside, the the small things that they could start to see that helped them feel like they were becoming the person that they felt like um, was more genuinely who they are. 
And um, and so that, that was really powerful. And a good portion of the anxiety and depression and stuff that they are, were dealing with um, has just kind of resolved. I mean, they still experience some, of course, and there's things that we're still working through, but um, just to see that transformation in them is definitely why do the work that we do. Perfect. And as as it should be, that response, which I think just highlights the importance of the work, brought up two other questions. One, feel free to decline this, but I, I think in the context of a lot of the politicization of healthcare for LGBTQ plus individuals, particularly those who are uh, who, who identify as transgender, what do you feel like the role of healthcare should be, um, and how does it impact you as a healthcare provider in a more rural and conservative area when that legislation is potentially looming? Yeah, I mean. Personally, I feel like it should be a decision between a provider and a patient. Um, healthcare, I think we have a responsibility to make sure that that is being done in a ethical and safe way, and that that's not something legislation should be guiding. As my, in just my experience in working with people, as some of this legislation has been has come forward and, you know, there's been all of this discussion and seeing the fear and the um, kind of trauma that that creates for not only patients, but parents. I I have a minor that I work with and the um, parents, you know, started making plans to figure out how they were going to move their entire family out of state. And that that is such a hard thing to see a family have to... um, have to consider um, just to be able to protect their child. And, you know, they truly felt like this is what they needed to do to protect their child. Luckily, it has not come to that um, in this state, but I think that is something that continues to weigh on the hearts and minds of of people who know the impact that, that legislation like that could make. Absolutely. I think, um, it seems like we're seeing stories almost every day or at least every legislative cycle every day about families that are really living in fear. So I think for Valor to take the step to really be, um, again, affirming and provide care within people's own community um, is really, really important. So um just want to acknowledge um, whether or not this gets included in the podcast that that's just amazing work that you guys have been doing. Yeah, it kind of just wanted to jump in really quick because when we talk about like the things that we've learned, it brings up one other thing because of the political stuff and just the environment that we're in. One of the things that I've learned is that you not have to only equip staff members with the with the right language to use and um, how to be respectful when when someone comes into. Um, our clinic that identifies as LGBTQ, but also need to prepare them for people who may have a whole lot to say um, in a very negative manner about the fact that on our form, it asks them their um, gender identity. And, you know, we're asking some of those questions. It kind of, we've had some issue with patients then in the middle of the lobby voicing their 
disapproval of um, of these things being even offered as part of healthcare. I think we just have to be aware of that. We have to give staff some some you know things to be able to respond to that those the people who might act that way when um, when they're confronted with it. I think that. Again, it's about supporting people where they are. And I feel like at some point it's inevitably going to end up being political in some ways, but it's just the the personhood at the center of it. Um, I think you do a really nice job of kind of spotlighting. It's it's about taking care of people and making it a decision between a person and their healthcare provider. Um, so I, I just appreciate the work that you guys are doing there. And um, I, I know... We don't anticipate it going away in future legislative cycles. So um, just for those that might be listening to kind of think about that perspective. My last question and talk a little bit about um, the intersection of behavioral health and LGBTQ plus care. That's something that I've been doing a little bit of learning on kind of on this journey with you. And I know that that's an area where you really focus and you talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, for me, um, when I look at those gaps in our community, that was a huge gap. Um, it still is a huge gap. There are very few mental health providers as it is. There's not enough to serve the community. And then um, there really isn't, um, to my knowledge, anyone who has any you know, additional knowledge, let alone expertise in working with the LGBTQ plus population in the community. And I, I think that just like when we talked about um, that someone within that population it is a huge, it's a part of who they are. And if we don't recognize that, we do a disservice to that individual. And that applies in healthcare and it applies in mental health. And so if, as a mental health provider, you're going to work with someone who identifies as LGBTQ or is questioning and is um, needing to explore that because that's a huge part of what we might do in mental health and behavioral health. Um, then you have to have some level of competence in being able to safely help someone walk through that and know some of the language. And um, and so that is a huge part of the work I've done over the last two and a half years is, is just trying to educate myself and find different trainings that are going to help me build those skills and, and gain more knowledge and, um, and in some places, some comfort level and talking about things that I'd never really talked about before. And so that I think is a huge gap that we have. And, um, I hope that I'm seeing more and more people become interested in learning more and providing services, but I think we have a lot of work to still do. Well, thank you, Camille. Um, That gets me to the end of my questions, and I think also the end of our time. Is there anything else that you want to say, anything kind of as we get to the end of the conversation that you're like, oh, I wish I would have brought up X, Y, or Z? Um, I mean, I think the last thing I would just say is I've I've thought a lot about why why I'm so passionate about working with this population. Um, Yes, I have some personal connection because of children, but also what I have learned in working with people is that we are all trying to figure out who we are. And we are all, that's a scary thing to do, to put out there, this is who I am, and not know how it's going to be received. And when who you are is 
something that society is telling you in multiple ways is not acceptable, it takes such courage to say, no, this is who I am, and and I am learning how to express that and find comfort in that, and um, and then it just I I'm amazed by the courage and the bravery that that takes, and how much we can learn, no matter how we identify, about that ability to to show up and just say this is who I am, and that level of vulnerability that it takes, and that um, I think is part of why I am drawn to working with this population. That's really beautiful. Thank you so much, Camille. Uh, it's such a joy to work with you on this project and super passionate about it. And I'm already writing up some articles, hoping that we can get more of this moving in the future. Well, thank you. I very much appreciate working with you and I, I look forward to continuing to do the work. Thanks so much for listening. Please find us on social or our website to learn more about what CHU does and how to support with and engage our work. Until next time, Let's all support each other with a little life support.